that's what we're seeking after. We're seeking to please God, and we please God when he is changing us into the image of Christ. All things work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And that's the purpose, conformity to the Son. Welcome, and welcome to the They Might Know, the podcast with Gregory Treat and Joe Durso. Today, we'll be talking about chapter two of Joe Durso's book, The Jesus You Need to Know. Chapter two delves into Jesus as a servant, which is kind of an interesting place to start your substantive review of who Jesus was. Any any particular reason you chose that attribute, Joe? You know, you asked that on, you were thinking about that on the very last podcast, and I I have to tell you, it, it never really occurred to me until you, you brought that up, that that might be a strange place to start. But um, I don't know, in my mind, it just seemed like the place to start. So I can't really give you a specific answer why my, I went there. Well, I mean, you know, you start the chapter with actually before you get actually get into any discussion of service, you you have quite a few bits on the the magnificence, the omnipotence of God, the fact that, you know, God God doesn't need to serve anyone. He has uh he has all power and all knowledge and all that stuff. So, in, in, you say uh Jesus never needs to serve. We need to pause at this point and try to answer in part the question of why. By virtue of his perfect nature, God is complete and needs nothing. So why would he ever create anything in the first place? Since the creation cannot add anything to him, why would he create anything? Because the creation does not exist for some need in God, even though it is for his glory and pleasure, we must conclude that within God there is the heart of a servant. I mean that's just so again I think I think with that maybe if that gives you a little bit more clarity as to what I'm asking how how did you come to that recognition of of that that piece of God um to be honest with you completely um I was spending some time in prayer and it was really something that really came out of my prayer times I mean I know the word I know that God is has all the omnis attached to his character and he's infinite and you know omnipresent and he's everywhere present at the same time and he's perfect in knowledge perfect complete in power he's content i mean he needs nothing i'm spending all this time worshiping god thinking about this i think it it just rolled around in my head you know why, why did he create anything i mean that's what it came out of my worship times, and that's where the thought went. And I concluded, I hope rightfully, that God, well, I know I'm right and that he doesn't need anything, you know, but, but then why create it all? And uh, I think I raised a bigger question than I came up with an answer. I mean, obviously in his, in his heart, uh, God possesses humility within the Trinity, and there's self-sacrificing, you might say, um, there's nothing needed to sacrifice among the Trinity, but at the same time, that heart is there. Um, the Father loving the Son and wanting everything good for the Son, and and who can understand an eternality? And you know, it, 
it's a big question, and I think maybe in a small way I touched on the answer. And I think that's why when people read the book, they tell me, you know, I, I had a guy just today. Uh, I asked him, did you, did you read my book? He said, yes, I did. I'm going to have to read it again because it's kind of deep. Um, I think in part I, re- I wrote the book in such a way that people would want, would want to worship. I mean, if you're really worshiping God and doing it correctly, you're, you're not coming up with complete answers because you can't wrap your mind around God. And, and that's okay. I mean, we, we need to be humble. We need to acknowledge the fact that God is bigger than us. So it's okay to just worship saying, coming up with a, a question, a good question, giving a little bit of an answer, and then worshiping the rest of the time. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the when you get into the servant, one of the first things that you highlight in terms of what what is a servant, when we say that Jesus Christ had a servant's heart, what does that mean? And you 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 kind of highlight two points. One is the the immediacy that that we see so often in the Gospel of Mark. You know, immediately they did this, and then immediately after this happened, and there's this this urgency to the servant's life. And you also note the tirelessness of Christ's ministry and the fact that, you know, he, there were times in his ministry where people were, and people who desperately needed him were coming to see him so frequently that he, he could barely get even uh, enough time to eat. Hmm. I mean, that sort of servant's heart, how do we, how do we develop that? How do we develop it? You mean how to be a little bit more specific with that question? Yeah, I mean, so how how do we? I mean, we're we're thinking about Jesus and thinking about Jesus' servant heart, servant's heart, because you know we want to be like him. I think one kind of the 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 question that I would have for you is how do you have that sense of urgency? That sense that because you know a sense of urgency implies. Uh, a need and and a value to what you're doing that there's something actually happening that that really matters and you know in in modern life one of i mean that's the thing that we're lacking right i mean people jump off of buildings and you know destroy their lives in in, in a reckless pursuit for some sense of meaning because we have no sense of meaning in in the modern world and christ i mean he he clearly he had a perfect purpose for his life, and he knew exactly what that was, and he was chasing after that with everything that he had. I guess to be fair to that question, I'm going to have to give kind of a two-fold answer. On the one side, it's, it's an intellectually. We, 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 you and I, you know, we're completely in agreement when it comes to Christian theology, meaning you know, we believe in the depravity of man. And because we believe that man is sinful and he's lost and he's rejected God, and that's the basic element that's present in a person who's lost, he's turned his back on God. He doesn't acknowledge God. Even when he makes up religions and he cuts down trees and he fashions it in the form of what he thinks God is. I mean, that kind of, now we do that today more philosophically, but so that that false religion is rejecting god and because of that man is isolated from god under god's judgment god is angry with man for rejecting him i mean that's where it begins and out of that need which we understand in the scripture god is 
a God of justice. He's not going to just let that go, sweep it under the rug, act like it didn't happen. That's what we do as sinners. Um, unless we want to judge somebody else and then we can throw down the hammer. But uh, with all of that said, with God, it's all fair, it's all righteous. And so theologically, intellectually, we see the need as we look at other men. Now, as Christians, I think in honesty, we would all admit that no matter how intellectually astute we are with the needs of people around us, we still fall down on the job. I don't feel I did an adequate job with a neighbor of mine who just died this past week. And he was an elderly man. And I kept saying I'm going to give him more literature and talk to him more. And I never got to it. And I've been feeling bad about it all week. And so intellectually is one thing. And then there's the spirit that drives us. I mean, the Book of Mark, you're talking about it. You know, the spirit drove him into the wilderness. The spirit is all through the book moving Christ. Not that Christ needed that, but he was identifying with us as men do, who do. And and that in that identification is the love of God who came down to man, became a man, uh, identified as a man, and in this sense uh, made himself dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Now we're dependent upon the Holy Spirit to energize us uh, to be enthusiastic about things like my neighbor's lost, he's old, I need to talk to him. And mm. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the thoughts is what is what was it about Christ? Because you, you know, in, in the book, you you connect these two things. You connect Christ's identity as a servant and this sense of immediacy, this sense of of tirelessness and and to me that 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 speaks of an enormous sense of purpose an enormous faith you might call it in what Christ was doing and I think how, so how do how do we apply this to ourselves if that's what it means to be a servant how do we look like that well, I think one of the I mean, things because that... it just uh, I don't mean to cut you off, but sorry, but just to kind of it's give okay. some 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 context to the question because there's a lot of people that go to our churches that affirm our doctrine and even we ourselves, you know, we don't we don't feel that. We don't have that sense of urgency. We don't have that sense of tirelessness because our purpose is right. That's that's not something that is typical, I would say. Even I mean, even for the people that I admire and agree with the most. Well, I I think, again, let's look at history. I didn't do this in the book, but let's, let's look at history, uh, church history. And you see the men who are the most ambitious, self-sacrificing, have that martyr mentality, throw themselves into the work, and you see men with a deep abiding prayer life think of hudson taylor i mean uh, the man is up at three o'clock every single morning he's in china having been raised in london in in england and purposely moving to the worst side of town so he could live in danger and get used to it and then he gets on a boat with no intent of coming back and he sails off to china which he did gather other people after him which was in the hundreds and you know, he, he just tirelessly sought the lost. Why? Because he tirelessly sought God. 
He spent time with God. He spent time in the Word. He prayed. He worshiped. He humbled himself. And in that routine, in that desire, I think God laid it on him to be willing to... And this was a man on the mission field who lost a daughter at three years old, I believe it was, and broke his heart and you know, lost a wife and just never end, never stopped. I mean, nothing could even slow the guy down. Why? You know, there's just no substitute in life for a good prayer life. If that, I don't mean to make turn that into some discipline thing. I'm talking relationship. I'm yeah. not talking about routine. I'm talking about relationship. Well, I mean, I think it's. I think we have to have a a understanding of the identity of people because if you're a proud man, right? And you, and, and and think you mentioned this kind of in in your book, and we've we've danced around it tonight but one of the the killers in spiritual life is pride is thinking that you are the thing and that your comfort and your success is the measure of how pleased god is with you and with what you've done and we need to again keep firmly in mind that the the, the perfect person the perfect minister the perfect preacher came down and we decided the only thing we could do with a guy like that is, you know, put him up on a cross and kill him. Can't have people like that around. So there just has to be a a humility and an acceptance of our place as disciples, right? I mean, Christ said that, you know, what they what they do to the the master, they will do to his disciples. <laughs> and having that that mindset that and, and I think also there's 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 a a point where we have to have faith that God is good, that we are both justified in in our in our lives, and and you know we're not we're not seeking. It's not. It doesn't mean that we're out of the will of God just because life is hard, but also that the thing that God is asking us to sacrifice for is of ultimate good, right? I mean, Paul has that. You know, these these light and momentary tribulations are not not worthy of being compared to the joy that is set before us. And I think that's that's one of those places where that's how you have a servant's heart. That's how you behave in the way that Jesus behaved. He, he poured himself out for people. And, you know, as we've discussed several times, and you mentioned in, in kind of, think, I think I believe the next section of the, the chapter, you talk about what did, what did revivals look like? Well, revivals looked like, men who the Holy Spirit got a hold of them and suddenly they started acting just like Christ in, in, in this sense. They had a sense of urgency. They worked tirelessly because they really saw what they were working for. And, and they said, it's all worth it. If I pour my life out, it's all worth it. Any, any, uh, I mean, you, you kind of, let me see if I can find the the section. But you mentioned you mentioned the revivalists and and what they what their lives look like. Are there any any particular stories that you think of when I, as I'm talking through this idea? Well, you know, as you're talking, and I think you're doing a great job. <laughs> you know, I, I I think what was going through my mind was the fact the difference between the old and the New Testament. Because as you talk about, you know, they they didn't complain, they didn't tire, and and in the Old Testament, <clears throat> um, not that we're better than them. Um, they there you read through the psalms and you know you get this whole section that's just like complaining and how long and you know all of this and and we do that i mean uh in christian circles but the, the point is you know they had a shadow of christ they had a 
a foreshadow of someone to come, but it, it was just like that. You know, when a man's about to step on the, sh- the stage, and uh, if he has a shadow, that's all you get is this black outline. But when Christ showed up, you know, he, we get the very substance of what God did. We see him in living color. We get the features. We get all of it um, in this life as much as we've been given so much more than the Old Testament. If we live like Old Testament saints, we're going to complain a lot. And you live like an Old Testament saint. You mentioned faith. And that's, you know, faith opens the eyes. It allows you to see Jesus. And when you see Jesus, you get really motivated because God really sacrificed his, he who withheld not his own son, the beloved son, an eternity of loving, you know, the second person of the Trinity, he offered him up for our sins in a way that we really can't begin to comprehend. And when you worship there and when you, you have the eyes of faith open, that's a motivator. That's a big one. You know, we love him yeah. because he first loved us. Yeah. Well, I mean, any any of the revivalists that, that that come to mind when we're talking about, you know, men that worked tirelessly for for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom. Well, I'm I'm going to go immediately to George Whitfield. I mean, I just I just love the man just from all the with the reading I've done about him. I mean, you, you you know, you read about his life, and you just want to get on a horse and start preaching. You know, you know. Look, here's a story about Whitfield. If you want a story about a revivalist, and he lived during the Great Awakening, both in England, you know, in Europe, and, and in America. And um, here's a guy who just, until he came across the the Edwards, um, he saw the love in their home, and a husband and wife, and the family. You know, he he was just bent on proclaiming the gospel. But he didn't want to get slowed down with this. And the preacher, and I forget his name, I'm sorry, who, who really focused him on going into the fields because they actually they were rejecting him in the churches naturally. And, you know, preaching and people would come by the masses in England and then in Europe and then in America. And he's preaching and thousands are getting saved and God is moving. And... Um, and then he sees the Edwards and he starts to stir up in him about marriage and a wife. And and the, the other man in England, he fell in love with a, with a woman. I don't know if you know the story. And, you know, he didn't want to get slowed down either. And so he, it sounds like a bizarre, crazy story, but he, he, he approached uh, at one point George Whitfield and told him, why don't you marry her? And that's what Whitfield did. And uh, it's it's crazy. It's bizarre. It's something I think that would only happen during a time of revival. You know, forget it would never happen today. Today, because today there's much closer balance between family and Christ. I, I don't know that that, and I'm not denying the love for family at all. Um, but I wasn't the one who said, you know, unless a man hate his father, his mother, his daughter and son and his wife and his own life he can't be my disciple he's not telling us to hate obviously we're to love our family but by comparison to how we love christ it should be almost as hate Uh, i see that in the whitfield story i see that in the in the in the friend who 
kind of motivated him to go out into the fields and do the preaching and the lives that they lived. It was God, I think, that was behind all that. Would I advocate doing that with the water woman? I wouldn't. Um, but I'm not living in a time of revival, in my opinion. And maybe if I did, I would. <laughs> but and there, you know. So I'm not going to criticize what happened during that. I'm just saying that's how bizarre it gets when people put Christ really first. Yeah, I mean, it's an example of where the man's priorities lay. And obviously, yeah. obviously, we we assume and and hope that he followed the the commands in the New Testament to to take care of his own family. Um, presumably, he did because that that was, I think, a much bigger deal back then than it is now, frankly. But uh, yeah, I mean, you have to have a, a clear perspective on your priorities. As good as it is to, as good and necessary in the long run as it is to have family and to take care of them and to vindicate God's character in that sense, there has to be a understanding of we are willing to sacrifice for our king. Now, frankly, for most of the people that are listening uh, to this podcast, the the thing that you could do best to serve and sacrifice for your king is make sure that you're at home, make sure that you're providing for your family, because that is the, the, the typical, the default manner that, that, that God organizes things around. But we, at, at, a, at a level of principle, at a level of theology, we understand the distinction, and it's an important one. So, yes, it is. I mean, you know, and, and then finally, the, the, the final point that you make, and we've uh, talked about this, I think, several times during this, this talk, is prayer. And what the kinds of prayer that Jesus prayed, the habit of prayer, I mean, what would you consider to be a, a solid foundation in prayer? How important, maybe, maybe this is a better way, how important should your prayer life be to you? Well, that's a great question, Greg. Um, I think if any person listening to this is desirous of a better prayer life, you, you know what I'm going to say now, right? <laughs> you know, we, we want to push them in the direction or point them in the direction of E.M. Bounce, who was a pastor in the late 19th century, uh, who uh, has spoke to prayer like probably nobody that I've read uh, in my opinion, but uh, apart from the good and wisdom that you can derive from a man like that, how important is prayer? You know, how per, how important is it to get close to God? Would be a good question. You know, prayer isn't you know now I lay me down to sleep. You know, in my heart to keep whatever that is. You know, it, it's not rote. It's not a routine. It's like, uh, you know, Piper when he puts it in the context of your wife. You know, you, yeah. you want to tell your wife you love her. You want her to feel loved. You want to, you want to communicate. You want to talk. And, and they're better at it than we are. And you want to see, talk eyeball to eyeball. You want to look at, you know, a woman doesn't like anything better than looking in her face. And, you know, it's, it's about that personal. Because when we, when we focus on Jesus... When we see him for what he is, Second Corinthians tells us we're transformed. There's a metamorphosis. We go from this ugly caterpillar that crawls along the ground to this beautiful butterfly that everybody loves. It's just graceful and beautiful colors and all the rest. And that's what we're 
seeking after. We're seeking to please God, and we please God when he is changing us into the image of Christ. All things work together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And that's the purpose, conformity to the Son. You know, we started with why did God do all of this? Well, we know for a fact that he wanted a bride and that bride is going to mirror who he is and throughout all eternity. He's going to derive pleasure. I don't understand all of this, but uh, I know he's deriving pleasure by loving the Son in this way. And the Son is deriving pleasure in honoring the Father and the Holy Spirit's in the mix as well doing all of this really in loving God. (laughs) And we're just filled, you know, propelled by grace that calls us out of sin to participate in the divine family. See, and this is where worship, this is what prayer is about, meditating on this, thanking God for it, loving God for what he's doing, what he's done, what he's going to do that we can't even imagine and you'll read Revelations and you see the New Jerusalem and this crystal building and all of this. And it's like all to honor, put the honor where the honor really belongs. And that's in God. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about prayer, and I think you and I have talked about this, is that you need to learn. It's, it's not simple to be taught how to pray. Prayer is something, deep prayer is something that's more caught than taught, as they say. So if you want to learn how to pray, spend time with praying people praying. Don't spend time with them talking theology. Don't spend time with them sharing your your hearts and sorrows, though you will, because if they're praying people, those things will happen. But spend make make sure that you are spending purposed time and, and extended periods of time learning what it looks like to see someone pray. Uh, you know, I mean, when I, when I think of how, how I learned to have the kind of prayer life that I have, such as it is, uh, I learned from you, Joe, and from some other, some other folks for the, the, the Kirkpatrick's here in DFW have been very good to us. And, you know, these last several years, it's been, when I think of how I learned to pray, I, I think of people, I think of nights where I sat with people, where I watched them pray, where I, I heard them, and where I saw them in front come in front of the king that that I serve, and I was like, okay, this is what it looks like. This is this is how to and 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 then I think there's also an aspect of there's a discipline aspect, and when you're uh, when you're grossly out of shape, which in terms of spiritual disciplines. Most Americans were were pretty grossly out of shape, um, and we need the the accountability of a group. So I think in terms of practical stuff, you got to have that time, uh, or maybe put it this way: if you think that you can just set a time and get up in the morning and pray by yourself, if, if you do that, eventually you will you will persevere. If you read the Bible, because God is faithful and He'll respond to you, but. In terms of learning how to pray for for extended periods of time, learning how to enjoy the richness of prayer, set set a time with some guys and sit down and pray with them. When you can pray, when you can remain in an attitude of prayer for ninety minutes, for you know two hours with a group, then 
then you're going to be much more capable of sort of running running that race course without anybody there, right? I mean, it's the, it's the reason why when you're when you're teaching kids how to do track and field, they don't run by themselves initially, right? Eventually, as you get good, when you get to the point where, yeah, I can do all the group exercises and, and that doesn't, you know, that doesn't trouble me anymore, then it's time for you to run by yourself and push yourself and set your, you know, set your own kind of metrics when you're working. But until then, it's not a thing. I mean, I, th- I think there's there's a lot of people that think, well, I can just go and sit back in my prayer closet and have the the kind of prayer life that I read about. Uh, from from the, the the saints of old, right? And I think we just don't understand the lives they lived. Most households would have prayers daily, or at least several times a week. And these were not, you know, what's what's that what's that old TV show where they pray as as the lights are going out? What's that TV show? <laughs> it's, I mean, uh, on the, on on the mountain, uh, John, John Boy. Uh, Good night, John Boy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I forget. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's not what it was. I mean, this was you would gather around and uh, around the dinner table usually and the father and and then in a lot of families everyone would pray and you would be you would be praying for extended periods of time. So people they they don't one of the hard things about reading somebody like E.M. Bounds is he has no concept of a nation of such spiritual of such spiritual obesity as we have in America today. He's used to a nation where people pray, where people pray in groups, and then and the necessary thing that they need is to that 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 spark of individual prayer of chasing God. But we, I think, sometimes we're we're uh, we're too out of shape to try Ian Bounds uh, to try to do what he says you should do at, at the first outset. So sometimes, I mean, if you're if you're blessed, if God put that heart of a prayer and you read Ian Bounds and it immediately makes sense to you. That is wonderful. You are an asset to the kingdom, and and we're excited for you. But if you you read Ian Bounds and you you set your alarm and you get up and you realize, you know what? I don't. I think I prayed for like, you know, I can count it in seconds for this whole <laughs> period of time. Yeah, that's that's normal. That's normal. And you should find a group of guys that are or or, or group of people of your same your same uh, uh, sex that are praying and that are being intimate, and then. You know, go and go and learn what it looks like. Find somebody that knows how to pray and watch them pray. That was a little bit sorry. I know this is this is your episode, Joe, but I just had to no. Had you're to making, give my my two cents on that stuff. No, you're any, making any great, you're making a great point. I'm I'm glad you yeah. went there. Well, I'm just going to say this. I'm just going to add to what you said, and it's everything you're saying is so true. This is not an intellectual exercise. This is not a something you really learn in the classroom. You know, you can we can talk about prayer, but that's you're right. That's not the real learning. To, doesn't take. So when I went off to school, Bible to learn about the Bible and about Christianity and Christian life, uh, two two uh, two things happened. One, I, I may have I know I've told you this before, but you know, went into the chapel and I heard what sounded like people talking, and <clears throat> it was Donald Perkins, the president, and he was in prayer by himself, and and when I realized. It sounded so intimate, so I was felt as though I was intruding on a personal conversation, and I just kind of backed out, but it made a lasting impression. But then also, and I know a lot of conservatives are not going to like this idea, and if they ever tried it, 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 it's, I don't know, I've just come across people that just don't like it, but uh, we would have a Bible study before 
uh, we went off to worship or whatever churches we were going for the day, uh, but we would have a men's prayer meeting where, where there would be a devotional given, and then after the devotional, we would break up into twos in the same room. And uh, two men would kneel down, uh, possibly three, but mostly two, and, and one would just start praying and listen to the other, and then the other would pray and might go back and forth. And meanwhile, you'd have a room full of men, and, and once in a while, and, and I'll tell you what it taught you. It taught you to avoid distraction. And if there's one thing a person has to conquer to have a vital prayer life, is distraction. It comes from everywhere. So now you're on your knees and all these voices are going up. How do you focus? And it didn't take me long to tell you the truth every Sunday doing this to not even hear them anymore. Once in a while, it would be nice to just stop and hear all those voices going up to heaven. And it started to be kind of like almost nice to know that I was in a group of men who cared enough to spend the first part of the Sunday morning in prayer with other men. And I, I, I was blessed by it, but I would mostly just focus on what the man next to me was praying, what I needed to pray, and, and we, were, we were learning about prayer together. So uh, yeah. it was good. Yeah, well, and I mean, neither you nor I are, are strictly, I mean, you're certainly not a, a charismatic, and I'm, I'm not a charismatic either at the end of the day. One of the things that, that I have observed is we have to be careful in our search for doctrinal purity to not erase mystery <laughs> because our God is a God that we don't understand and our God is a God who, who is a spiritual being and he does spiritual things. And if you – I think uh, at the base of a lot of cessationist declamations is – not a so much a concern for right theology as it is a smug functional materialism in outlook a and a disdain for superstition and at the end of the day i mean you believe if you're a christian you believe in a god who died and rose again who who i mean you've never seen someone that died and rose again and, and you believe that, that that God has a relationship with you that endures to this day in, an, in a personal and intimate way. I mean, one of the things, you know, I think we, we have to be careful not to downplay the incredible magnitude of those truths and, and the incredible, the absurdity of those truths if, in fact, Christ has not been raised, right? If Christ has been raised, then, then everything flows together and 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 our our lives and our scriptures they all make sense but if christ has not been raised if there isn't actually a god that can break in and has the immediate ever-present power to rewrite the rules of nature because he's nature's god if, if we don't have that we don't have anything if we don't have a god who hears us when we pray and I think I think there's there's this root of materialism in many Americans where we struggle to not see prayer as a superstition, and I, you know, and and again, I'm, if if you there there's some stern rebukes that have and should continue to be made to the charismatic nonsense, but we can, absolutely cannot allow their error, their folly, in many cases to to in any way cause us to 
have less of a reverence and an awe and an expectation of the power of our God when we pray and the presence of our God when we pray, most most especially in us, right? We, we expect our God to do the hard miracles, that is, to change men's hearts, including most particularly ours. That's so important. I'm glad you went there because, you know, when I started sharing about the prayer, some people wouldn't interpret that as cultural. They would look at it as in the Bible says we should do all things decently and, and you know, and in order. Uh, I never saw disorder in that prayer meeting. Uh, I never saw it. Um, the charismatic movement, to tell you the truth, was really picking up steam at that point. It wasn't, we weren't looking back. I mean, you could look back to Azusa Street and things that went on. But, you know, in the 70s, uh, I think a touch of revival was really kind of maybe still going on. But, you know, the charismatic movement, uh, you know, you look at that and you, you see unbiblical, like you're talking about. But culture is not unbiblical. And if, it's, if it is cultural for people to be in the same room, and I would view it that way, and praying all together, you know, it could be disorder, but it's more of what the heart is doing. It's more, you know, is this, if, are people out for show? And that might lead something to be disorderly. But if people are really there for God... That's not disorderly, no matter what it may appear to be. Am I, am I making sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but I, and I think I think that you know, I wasn't so much thinking of the the charismatic practice. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been in many churches that weren't charismatic that where people just pray to God all at the same time um, because God's big enough to hear us. But I think that that one of the things that we struggle with that's an unacknowledged struggle is a materialistic outlook. And we we need to have a a clear understanding. Materialism and the Bible are implacable, eternal enemies. The idea that there is no God, that there is nothing but what we can see, hear, taste, you know, touch and smell— I mean, though those ideas are absolutely an assault on the biblical God. You know, and this is one of those interesting things that they're not really an assault on a lot of the other religions. They're not an assault on Buddhism. Uh, when you when you get into sort of philosophical Hinduism, they're not an assault on Hinduism. Uh, they're not an assault on Confucianism. But Christianity, the God of the Bible, materialism is a direct assault on that God. It it is saying. You know, God, you are not allowed to do these things. And anyone who believes in a being that does these things is superstitious or insane or mentally deficient or whatever, right? And we, and we have to understand kind of what side of that debate we're on, if we're Christians at all. We're on the side of the people. You know, we're, we're fools for Christ. We believe in a God that listens to us when we talk to him in our minds, we believe in a God that can hear what's our innermost thoughts, right? And we, if I think there's a lot of people that they struggle with praying because they don't really believe that. They, they struggle to believe that there's a God that actually hears their innermost thoughts. And that's something that we got we to gotta talk about and deal with and, and acknowledge honestly. And I think that, 
you know, fate and 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 again, at going back to the 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 topic of this this episode is having a servant's heart. If you are in communication with the person that you're obeying, if you have a servant's heart, it doesn't matter what other people think of you. You are praying to God and you have his word to give you his answers. And if you don't believe those things, then you're going to have trouble. I don't know what your Christian faith means to you if you don't believe those things. But this is why many of us struggle to pray. And so we need to have a servant's heart. We need to have a, a clear view that we are obeying the one that wrote the Bible. And that that's what gives us everything we have. That's what gives us our sense of urgency. That's what gives us our sense of, of, of our ability to work so hard. Because we do need to work hard. We do need to push. We do need to sacrifice for this Jesus. Or our faith means nothing at all. You know, and and specific, and that's that's one of those big things in prayer too, right? I mean, that that passage in the the Garden of Gethsemane. Could you not wait for even one hour? Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, you're making some great points, and and since we are talking about servanthood, and since the Bible makes it very clear that the just shall live by faith, you know what the, what does that mean exactly? Well, it means believing in something you can't see. And Jesus said, those who worship me must worship me in spirit. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You know, uh, we don't see the spiritual side of life. You're right. We, we don't see God. We, we, we have never seen Jesus in the flesh. Never, probably never going to see the God who's so big and invisible. You can't put your eyes on him but that's not going to stop us from believing in him and seeking him with all our heart throughout all eternity it's not because we see the physical jesus which obviously that's going to have some huge impact but we worship him now for two thousand years people more than that people have been laying down their lives for a person they don't see that because the spiritual side of it like you've been pointing out which is so true it, it, it exists it exists in the heart. It exists through the eyes of faith. We believe in a God we don't see, and we seek after him. And that, in this part of this episode, is translating into how we serve God through seeking him in prayer. I think it's uh, really, yeah, you, you did a good job in, in leading us there. Thank you for that, Greg. Yeah, well, uh, any, any other points you want to make before we wrap this episode up, Joe? I think we, we can wrap it up. All right. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, so much for listening to this conversation between Joe Durso, the author of The Jesus You Need to Know, and this is the They They Might Know podcast. I'm Gregory Treat, and thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you.